This is The Writer's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear Rachel Cusk read her story, The Stuntman, from the April 24th and May 1st, 2023 issue of the magazine. Cusk, a Guggenheim Fellow, is the author of four nonfiction works and 11 novels, including the Outline Trilogy and most recently Second Place. Now here's Rachel Cusk. The Stuntman At a certain point in his career, the artist D, perhaps because he could find no other way to make sense of his time and place in history, began to paint upside down. This is how I imagine it. At first sight, the paintings looked as though they had been hung the wrong way round by mistake, but then the signature emblazoned in the bottom right-hand corner clearly heralded the advent of a new reality. His wife believed that with this development he had inadvertently expressed something disturbing about the female condition and wondered if it might have repercussions in terms of his success. But the critical response to the upside-down paintings was enthusiastic and Dee was showered with a fresh round of the awards and honours that people seemed disposed to offer him almost no matter what he did. The couple lived in a region of forests some distance from the city. For despite the world's approval of him, Dee had been angered and hurt by it, and could not bring himself to forgive it. This is how I imagine it. His early work had been savagely criticised, and though some people might have felt that these attacks were better than no attention at all, Dee had not recovered from them. He was the type not to withstand attempts to poison him, but rather to absorb them, to swallow the poison and be altered by it so that his survival was not a story of mere resilience, was instead a slow kind of crucifixion that eventually compelled the world to chastise itself for what it had done to him. It was because of the forests that Dee had found a way out of his artistic impasse, caught as he had felt himself to be between the anecdotal nature of representation and the disengagement of abstraction. He had spent a great deal of time observing the activities of the local foresters, and each time he saw a tree being felled, this question of verticality had suggested itself to him. First he had painted the men and the trees in a sort of joint condition of existence, in which the trunks were interchangeable with the bodies. Then he had seen how the bodies, too, could be felled, severed from their roots and likewise turned on their side or cut into sections. The notion of inversion finally came to him as a means of resolving this violence and restoring the principle of wholeness, so that the world was once more intact, but upside down, and thus free of the constraint of reality. When Dee's wife first saw the upside-down paintings, she felt as though she had been hit. This is how I imagine it. The feeling of everything seeming right, yet being fundamentally wrong, was one she powerfully recognised. The paintings made her unhappy, or rather, they led her to acknowledge the existence of an unhappiness that seemed always to have been inside her. Dee made a painting she particularly loved, of slender birch trees in sunlight, and the demented calmness and innocence of these upside-down trees seemed to suggest the possibility of madness as a kind of shelter. She couldn't have accused Dee of exploitation. Unlike other artists, he didn't paint out of self-importance, nor had he ever taken any kind of liberty that the public value of his gaze might have seemed to legitimise. 
So he had come upon this marginal perspective sidelingly, as it were, from a sideways direction, participating in its disenfranchisements, in its mute and broken identity, with the difference that he had succeeded in giving it a voice. The early paintings were large portraits, fluid and somewhat naive in style, of recognisable individuals from his region and from the circle of his acquaintance. They were simple and formal, as though Dee were making a statement about his own honesty at the very moment that he was turning the world upside down. Why were these people upside down? It was all one could ask, yet the answer seemed so obvious it felt as though any child could answer it. And so the painting succeeded in illuminating a knowledge that the person looking at them already possessed. Dee began to paint large, intricate landscapes in which nature seemed to be in its heyday, seemed to speak of its power to recover from human violence, its vigil through successive dawns to re-emerge perennially into the light. It basked in a wordless moral plenitude, innocent and unconscious of the complete inversion it had undergone. And it was this quality of innocence or ignorance, that succeeded in entirely detaching the representational value of the painting from what it appeared to represent. The question of whether Dee was actually painting an inverted world, or had simply turned the paintings on their heads and signed them when they were finished, was subject to a curious silence. The first scenario presented a formidable technical challenge. The second was more of an absurdist joke that could be passed off in a matter of minutes. Yet he was never publicly interrogated about it, and the question went unposed in the many critical writings about this radical development in his work. Sometimes people asked Dee's wife about it in private, as though with her they weren't afraid to risk a display of stupidity. It summed something up for her, and not just about art, that so enormous an uncertainty around the truth could remain subject to tacit muteness. In such moments, Dee's wife willingly assumed her role as a repository for weakness. She didn't resent it, because she learned so much more this way, but she guessed that this was how everything that was noble was eventually destroyed. Dee would have agreed with her wholeheartedly, and in fact she noticed that he began to speak openly about his technique, explaining the difficulties of inverted painting that could be resolved only through the use of photographs. Later, he rejected the photographic medium, and the paintings became even larger and more dreamlike and abstract. The question of what a human being actually was had never seemed so unanswerable. He often painted a man cowering alone in bed, the sullied oceanic blankness of the sheets, with the little tormented man somewhere at the top of the frame. Dee believed that women could not be artists. This is how I imagine it. As far as Dee's wife knew, this was what most people believed, but it was unfortunate that he should be the one to say it out loud. She wondered whether it was her own indefatigable loyalty to him, her continual presence by his side, that had brought him to this view. Without her, he might still be an artist, but he would not really be a man. He would lack a home and children, would lack the conditions for the obliviousness of creating, or rather, would quickly be destroyed by that obliviousness. So she thought that what he was really saying was that women could not be artists if men were going to be artists. Once she was in his studio for the visit of a female novelist who was struck as though by lightning by the upside-down paintings, much as Dee's wife herself had been. I want to write upside-down, the woman had exclaimed with considerable emotion. No doubt Dee had found this a preposterous thing to say, 
that Dee's wife was quietly satisfied because she felt that this reality that Dee had so brilliantly elucidated, identical to its companion reality in every particular but for the complete inversion of its moral force, was the closest thing she knew to the mystery and tragedy of her own sex. There had been a plaintive note, a suggestion of injustice perhaps in the novelist's tone, as though she had just understood that something had been appropriated from her. Dee was not the first male artist to have described women better than women seemed able to describe themselves. The lady had asked us to leave, for suddenly she wanted her apartment back. This desire had to be satisfied straight away. We must be gone, despite having no other place to stay. We had lived there for more than a year, and in the time after our rushed departure, she would sometimes call us out of the blue to find out how we were getting on. She was careful to sound casual and friendly, but the calls themselves spoke of guilt. There was a mirror in that apartment, ornate and gilded, that was so large it reflected the looker not as the centre of the image, but as part of a greater scene. To be reflected in it was to be seen in proportion to other things. The loss of the mirror was like the loss of a compass or a navigation point. It was surprising how deeply it had bestowed a feeling of orientation. Sometimes a minor change can bring down a major structure, and this was the case with the lady's apartment. After we left, a number of things happened whose roots could be found there. It was reported to us that the lady had not stayed in her apartment for long after all. It had disappointed her in some way, so she had gone back to where she had been living before, and now it stood empty. She had cultivated an image, perhaps, of her old life in the apartment that had drawn her away from the new life she had established elsewhere. But the apartment, when she got there, did not contain the old life. The old life had become the new life that she had been living. For several weeks we stayed in one place after another, never unpacking our suitcases. We were natives neither of the city nor of the country itself, nor of its language. The lady's apartment had been like a boat, and now we were cast into the sea. It had been full of her possessions, and I had derived a deep security from living among her things, which were of a kind I would not have chosen myself. It was not only the liberation from my own tastes and preferences that had comforted me, but also the immersion in the sensibility of another. Yet that same surrender, in the places that followed, was increasingly disturbing. We spent a lengthy period in a small, blank apartment, where the occupant of the rooms overhead paced the floors rapidly and ceaselessly every hour of every night, and I was drawn into the inquietude of this unseen stranger, which came to seem like my own inquietude, suppressed for the past year, awakening. The only mirror was a rectangle above the bathroom sink, and the front door was fitted with a succession of heavy steel locks. The concept of individuality had all at once become more limited and more threatened. I thought often of the home we had left, our own home, left of our own volition. We stayed for a few nights in a place with a broken boiler where we could not remove our coats. Rain and freezing sleet hurled themselves from the sky, a reprise of winter. In the streets people were sleeping huddled in doorways or under bridges and walkways, or sometimes in tents they had pitched on the pavement. Everyone walked past them, these reproaches to subjectivity, with apparent indifference. We ourselves, outsiders, in a limbo of our own making, perhaps felt the reproach differently. 
At home, people also slept in doorways. Here, it took us longer to forget them. We moved from place to place until spring returned, and the trees regained their foliage, and the streets became lively again. Walking through the city in the fierce, fresh sunlight, we could intermittently feel the element of liberation in our rootlessness. We had finally found somewhere to live, an apartment of our own, which would be available in a few weeks. Now that we had this harbour in sight, our true feelings, which bore the toll of experience, became more evident. A certain bloom, an innocence, or perhaps just an ignorance, had been stripped from us. We had envisaged a life here in this city, and then we had gone about trying to make the vision real. And in that process, the role of imagination appeared especially ambiguous, appeared to have exposed something we hadn't known about our relationship to reality itself. This other death face of imagination flashed before us now and then, in the periods when one thing could not be linked to another, and a lack of sequence or logic was apparent in the enactment of our plans. One morning, as I was walking along a quiet sunny street where people sat drinking coffee at pavement tables, I was attacked by a stranger who hit me forcibly in the head. My assailant was a woman, deranged by madness or addiction, and the fact of her gender caused difficulties, both in the recounting of the event afterward and in my own response to it. I had not noticed her approach or prepared myself for the blow, which left me bleeding on my hands and knees in the road, with no understanding of what had happened. A crowd instantly gathered. People rose from their tables, shouting and gesticulating. In the pandemonium, the woman walked away. The onlookers were pointing at her. She had stopped on the street corner and turned around, like an artist stepping back to admire her creation. Then she shook her fist in the air, and she vanished. It occurred to me in the time that followed that I had been murdered, and yet had nonetheless remained alive. And I found that I could associate this death in life with other events and experiences, most of which were consequences, in one way or another, of my biological femininity. I had generally attributed those female experiences to an alternate or double self, whose role it was to absorb and confine them so that they played no part in the ongoing story of life. Like a kind of stuntman, this alternate self took the actual risks in the creation of a fictional being whose exposure to danger was supposedly fundamental to its identity. But the violence and the unexpectedness of the incident in the street had caught my stuntman unawares. Even after we had moved into our new apartment, I was unable to forget or recover from what had happened. And the pure sorrow I felt seemed to stem from the consciousness of a larger defeat, to which this incident had contributed the decisive blow. The attack itself, which both belonged to memory and stood outside it, could not be digested. It stuck as though in the throat, impossible either to swallow or to spit out. Those few seconds repeated themselves over and over before my mind's eye, like something trapped and unable to find an exit. And the question of who my assassin was, of why she had attacked me, of what it was she had seen in me that she wanted to break, gradually gave way to the knowledge that what I was experiencing was in fact the defeat of representation by violence. When the lady from the apartment next called, I took a perverse kind of pleasure in telling her my news. How awful, she shrieked. I noticed that she ended the call more quickly than usual. I guessed we wouldn't hear from her again. Dee decided to paint his wife in something approximating the classical manner, 
as a nude. But the paintings were chaotic and dark. Far from freeing him from subjectivity, inversion seemed to disclose an unpleasantness inside himself, a crystallised hatred that both objectified his wife and obliterated her. She couldn't be seen, or at least not by him. Something brutal in their contract, the contract of marriage, surged forth and shattered the perceptual plane. It was not unusual for violence to spill out of the upside-down paintings, but it was a violence that he already knew he contained. He had inherited it, could answer it, was occasionally its victim. What he did not desire was to become it. Dee and his wife went to visit Dee's father, who lived in a stuffy little room in a retirement home out in the flat countryside. It was difficult to find reasons to visit him, since the home was not near or on the way to anywhere that Dee and his wife ever wanted to go. Yet at one time his domination of Dee had been such that it was indistinguishable from fate. There had been a period of years in which Dee and the father had not spoken, an estrangement for which Dee's father blamed him entirely, while also appearing to be perfectly content with it. His lack of self-reproach was more tormenting to Dee than almost anything else. There were stories of people who were redeemed by the approach of death and the light it shed on the truth. Dee had believed that the father would never die because it was impossible for him to be redeemed in this way. Then one day he had summoned Dee to the stuffy room out in the flat countryside, and so it seemed that he would die after all. Dee was privately frightened of going. He believed the father might kill him, annihilate him as he had once created him. Then Dee's wife had said that she would come. It was surprising to discover this insurance policy of marital love, which he had never thought to count on. Now she always accompanied him on these visits. The father was standing red-faced at his window, which looked out on the small round lawn and the driveway and the winding access road that came across the flat fields in front of the building. In the centre of the round lawn was a bare weeping willow. When the father saw them arrive, he moved away from the windows, where the winter sun made hard geometric shapes on the glass. His furious red face had seemed imprisoned behind the shapes, but now it was gone. The empty glass glittered. Later, during their visit, he returned several times to that window to look out. It seemed to be a territorial instinct that was also a compulsion of memory, as though he were being forced to carry the burden of memory to the window to offer it up. The room was on the second floor. Its thick beige carpet gave off a chemical odour. There was also the slightly rancid smell of old age. Through the window the day was windless and still, and at the centre of the motionless scene the bare willow, now seen from above, stood in a pool of its own fallen leaves. The hard winter light filled the hot room. The father sat in a padded leather chair facing the window. There was a television set in the corner of the room, but the chair had been moved away from it. The father did not watch television. Next to the chair was a varnished wooden side table with a folded newspaper lying on it. The father's shrunken body was clad in a grey shirt tucked into belted corduroy trousers. The clothes hung from him, but there was still a toughness to his flesh. He wore an expression of astonishment that never altered. He had a history of participation in certain evils of which Dee knew only a part, and against Dee he had committed many acts of speech that remained uncorroded in Dee's recollection. They didn't change or fade. 
It was the father who changed, as time ate away at him. Dee's growing inclination to forgive the father for the things he had said was also an inclination to forgive him for the things he had done, even though the first lay in the terrain of personal memory and the second in that of public record. But Dee had not succeeded in disentangling them, and together they filled him with such a darkness that his instinct was to rip them out of himself and fling them away without further examination. Dee's wife moved around quietly at the other end of the room, preparing coffee in the small kitchenette. It was darker there, and her form glimmered strangely among the slashing diagonals of light that reached it from the window. The winter sun was low, and the petrifying white lines laid themselves over the cupboards and walls so that she was rayed like a zebra where she stood. The same distance that had beset Dee in the nude paintings was suddenly present here, in this oppressive room. His wife's freedom, so partial and malformed, had a crippling effect on him. She was only a few feet away. He could neither use her nor dispense with her, could not, because of her, be entirely free himself. It was her undeveloped equality with him that was crippling. She was not the pure object of his desire, nor was she his rival and equal in power. Instead, she was his companion. She situated herself there, only a few feet away, in the terrain of weaknesses, of need, of plain daily requirements. Yet she herself could be desired. The father, for instance, was beadily watching her body move through the caressing bands of dark and light. Why did she not make proper use of her power, one way or the other? When Dee tried to see her, he simply saw his effect on her, saw, in other words, himself. Another man looking at her would see something different. This, he realised, was what he was unable to tolerate. It was unbearable that she could take his power of sight away from him and still be seen by everyone else. When he looked at her, what he saw was his sexual failure, a failure brought about by the interference of society, of civilization itself, in the courage and capacity of their own bodies. Perhaps men had always painted news in the same way that they committed violence, to prove that their courage had not been damaged by morality and need. The father was talking in the monotone he had adopted in old age, the affectless tone of loneliness. Dee's wife would ask him the simplest question, and the answer could last for 15 minutes, the voice neither rising nor falling, but moving steadily over the surface of things and levelling them, like a tank steadily reducing a field of action to flatness and dust. The regional accent of his youth, that had lain dormant through all the years of his adult vigour, had crept back into his voice. Dee heard in that accent the problem of history itself its dark inheritance insidiously bequeathed to each unsuspecting new generation. Dee's wife had come over with the coffee and placed it on the low table in front of them. She sat down beside Dee on the small, hard sofa. With her malformed freedom, was she free also of history, of responsibility for the past? What had she herself inherited that bound her to the ongoing story of time? The father was looking at them, sitting there side by side. Together on the sofa, Dee and his wife now composed a reality that told its own story, that could easily be read, unlike the image of minutes earlier, that of Dee's wife striped like a wild beast among the kitchen cupboards. The question of her insufficient self-realisation, her lack of effort, as it were, was now out in plain sight, as was his own crippled courage. 
These were the fundaments of his discovery of inversion, because reality would always be better than the attempt to represent it, and the power of truth, which lay entirely in the act of perception, could stand free of that attempt. A feeling of immense relief passed through him. Tomorrow, when they were home again, he would start a new painting. After I was hit, I desired for several weeks to hit in my turn. It was as if the violence were an actual object that had been transferred to me and that I needed to pass on. What I passed on would be more or less exactly what I had received, a blow to an unsuspecting stranger in the street. It would not, it seemed, have been altered in any way by its passage through myself. The only difference was that I had no feeling for, no interest in, the consequences of this action. I remembered the way my assassin had turned around, once she was at a safe distance, to look at what she had done. We went for a weekend to Berlin, where there was an exhibition of the artist Louise Bourgeoise's late fabric works. Beyond the tall open doors of the museum's entrance, where the attendants sat checking tickets, one of the artist's giant stuffed forms could be seen hanging in space, suspended from the ceiling. A human form, without identity, without face or features. It was genderless, this floating being, returned to a primary innocence that was also tragic, as though in this dream state of suspension we might find ourselves washed clean of the violence of gender, absolved of its misdemeanours and injustices, its diabolical driving of the story of life. It seemed to lie within the power of this artist's femininity to unsex the human form. A sickness had taken possession of me since the attack, of body, but also of mind. The boundary of possibility had been moved, and the world was now a different place. Its properties had been inverted. The self and its preoccupations were shrunken and impotent, and the exterior plane, with its prospects of imminent danger and disorder, greatly enlarged. I watched people move blithely through their days, unconscious of what could at any moment befall them. It was from the impulse to wake them from this trance, perhaps, that my desire to hit was generated. For the first time in years, I thought about the violence of giving birth, when I had passed as if through a mirror into an inchoate animal region, a place with no words. A part of myself, I saw, had been abandoned there, the part played by the stuntman. But now my stuntman had stepped out of the shadows. If the body was an object could be treated as an object, the stuntman attained a new authority. It was she, not I, who now walked around in the guise of myself. Yes, of course, I had thought when I awoke after a smashed interval to find myself lying in the street in blinding pain, with no knowledge of how I had got there. Automatically I had tried to understand what had happened, where I was, as one does on waking in darkness in a strange room as though the world, when unobserved, turns itself upside down, and it was the task of human consciousness to right it. This awful effort, this responsibility to situate oneself in space and time, to apply logic to one's predicament, was somehow immensely pitiable. A crowd of people had gathered, and in the moments before they began to react, they seemed simply to be looking at me, as they might look at a picture in a museum. They were waiting for my reaction, they needed it, this representation, in order to be able to act themselves. Their instinct was to disown the violence, or to pretend they hadn't seen it. It was up to me to place it in reality. 
I thought that I had perhaps been hit by a car, or that some heavy object had fallen on me from the buildings above. But the street was a pedestrian street, and the paving stones were empty and clean. Then I remembered the woman I had glimpsed, shortly before turning to cross over to the other side. She had been standing ahead of me on the pavement, beside some temporary railings that blocked the way forward. I had briefly registered her image, and then instinctively turned away, out of politeness, so as not to encroach on her, and remembering this I thought, yes, of course. Did I believe that being hit by a woman was my fault, in a way that being hit by a man could not have been? I could not have assigned meaning to being hit by a man, could have found no reason for him to hit me, and assigning meaning was my duty, just as it was my duty to get off my hands and knees and stand up. Why did it make sense for a woman to hit me? It was as though a violence underlying female identity had risen up and struck. This was the domain of the stuntman, this attack on me that had originated within me, but now the stuntman seemed to have been externalised in an actual human form. In the Louise Bourgeois exhibition, I found different reflections of this notion, there in the vague and exalted light of those lofty, silent rooms, which opened one upon another, so that one felt drawn deeper and deeper into the artist's secret being, where the making of art bore a relationship to the living of life that was at once childlike and savage. There, sanity and insanity were not opposites, but rather the two faces of animate matter, the point at which the existence of consciousness can go no further in breaking down the existence of substance, of the body. Art, rooted in insanity, transforms itself through process into sanity. It is matter, the body, that is insane. Inside a glass case, two headless knitted dolls were copulating. Blindly driven by instinct and need, the body has no awareness of its own moral preposterousness. But the female body has a special insanity, the insanity of the spider, for whom there is no boundary between the material and the immaterial self. The little cloth dolls with their little pink doll babies dangling from them by a knitted cord, are merely evolving towards the huge black spider waiting in the midst of her makings. Monstrous and silent, she seems almost a counter-fabrication, a product of metamorphosis, as though she had hatched unseen inside some greater fabrication and fed patiently off its illusions. She represents everything that is denied and suppressed in femininity everything that remains darkly continuous behind its volcanic cycles of change and yet is unknown. The exhibition was a memorial in thread and cloth, a knitted cathedral. How could the female sex be commemorated in stone? Its basis lies in repetition without permanence. Its elements are unlasting, yet eternal in their recurrence, as violence itself is. This notion seemed to illuminate the germ of creativity in my assassin's blow. While I was sitting with the police, who had led me to a chair at one of the pavement tables, the proprietor of the café had come out to give me a glass of water. She was sympathetic and kind, bemoaning the number of crazy people on the streets, mentally ill people, addicts. She told me that my assassin had been hanging around this corner for three days, and that the previous afternoon she had hit a woman in exactly the same place and in exactly the same way that she had hit me. That square of pavement, with its temporary railings, was, then, my assassin's studio. She was making something there, 
something it would take several attempts to get right. Her actions made no sense, were apparently insane, and yet to me they were entirely comprehensible. Dee's wife has a stomachache, a backache, a shooting pain in her hip when she gets too quickly out of a chair. Sometimes her hands shake in the mornings as she holds her coffee cup. This is how I imagine it. She receives these complaints of the body mildly, without consternation. In response, she commands herself to walk vigorously each day in the fields and woods near the house. She attends exercise classes and eats with care. She grants herself things that are warming and comforting, a hot bath, a rest in the afternoon. Often she indeed travel to southern places and she absorbs the brilliant sunlight and the smells and sensations of the sea until she becomes radiant. Through this combination of will and self-reward, her body passes its days. Their accumulation is a sort of secret history, a diary. Unobserved, she pays a more or less continuous attention to herself that only hints at a greater lack of significance. Her children are adults now, and she looks back on her history with them with a kind of fatigued amazement, like a retired general recalling past battles. She continues to be a woman, yet that fact has lately met with some kind of constraint or opposition. Instead of flowering and putting out its display, her femaleness is growing back into itself. Her body no longer represents any kind of danger. For a long time she felt that she had evaded Dee's knowledge of her. Some incapacity in him that was perhaps a form of kindness or consideration prevented him from knowing her completely. She evaded his possession, while wanting him, in fact, to possess her. It had seemed to be her fault that she could not be possessed by him. It suggested that she lacked womanliness. But the terms of possession for him were not what she had thought. It was not easy to live with someone who saw so much in what he looked at. It seemed as though his gaze ought to be effortlessly able to devour her. So the fact that he did not, would not, or could not devour her constituted a rejection as though she had been pushed to the edge of the plate. Indignant, she silently held herself away from him. The nude paintings were, in a way, the account of this battle. Her separateness, so fracturing in his eyes, blackened the space between them. She was tarnished by it, viewed with suspicion. Yet there in the paintings was the boundary that he himself would not cross. Sometimes, lying drowsily beside him in bed, she yearned for the description of herself that he refused to offer. He would not describe her, while to do so was a danger to himself, a risk. The first mention of a double portrait did not especially alarm her. On the contrary, it suggested a solution to the impasse. His idea was that they should appear side by side, seated on a sofa or some such. She was interested to see what account he would give of himself sitting there beside her. She assumed that this development had come from a compulsion toward honesty, and on that basis she took her place beside him on the sofa. But it soon became clear that he didn't realise what he had done to her with the nude paintings. He didn't know that he had stolen something from her. He had made her ugly, and he didn't know how anguished she was to be seen as ugly, when he was the single being who might be said to have an obligation to find her beautiful. The double portrait showed their living room drenched in brilliant morning sun. The wallpaper bore a blue and white pattern of flowers. 
She was not sure she had ever been truly conscious of those flowers until she saw them upside down and noticed their livid and disturbing aliveness. The furnishings were a little faded, casually messy. The sofa cushions were creased. The sun seemed to be leaching energy from the room, even as it illuminated it. The tall windows in the background were opaque with light. At the centre of the scene was a two-headed monster, Dee and his wife, as creased and bleached as the cushions they sat on. They were holding hands loosely. Their hair and clothes were untidy. Somehow she had been captured. For the next portrait, he suggested that they sit naked. She could have refused, but the moral logic of her situation didn't allow it. He had amassed significant wealth by now, as well as fame, and her status as his companion and wife was of a more serious order. It was her duty to help him. Nothing, not even love of their children, was as powerful as the obligation she felt towards his talent. His success, his achievement, was also hers, or rather she had relinquished any possibility of achieving something by giving her life and strength to him, and so she had claimed a part of it, his power, for herself. In that way she seemed no different from any other housewife. What she understood now was that the actual difference between her and those others belonged to him also. He paints a whole sequence of nude double portraits, and when she looks at them she sees the spectacle of her own unrealised life. Just as she has been his point of access to the superficial world, so he is using her now to make his confession. Her body is a sort of shield that he holds in front of himself to fend off the attack by time. Yet the implication is that their coexistence has been a fetter on his soul. There is something apparently humble, something almost comic in his willingness to present himself as one half of their couple. But the joke is on her. Bound to him, Sitting in her place beside him, she has been turned upside down. The portraits become bigger and more abstract. The two figures side by side are broken into shapes, into disintegrating shadows that appear to fade or reintegrate into the picture plane. She understands that he will continue to paint them, perhaps until the end. They are his late work, the melancholy song of his ageing, and the public devours them more enthusiastically than ever, because this honesty in the face of time and death is what it cherishes the most. The fact that she herself is imprisoned in the paintings is the unerring mark of his originality. He seems to surrender something by including her. His pride in his masculinity, the egotistical basis of male identity. In this way, he marks the advent of a new reality. The ageing bourgeois couple trapped unto death in their godless and voluntary bondage, is the pedestrian offspring of history. Some days in the city all the children seem to be screaming, screaming blue murder, in the street, in the park, through the windows of passing cars. These were not infantile wails, but the blood-curdling cries of strangulation and torture, of seers who had glimpsed some unspeakable horror that was about to befall us all. It was difficult to locate the source of these sounds of lamentation, which were so loud they seemed to come from everywhere. How could such small bodies generate so much noise? Often the screams reached the window of my room in the new apartment, where I was writing about the painter Paula Modison Becker, dead of childbirth at the age of 31. Her nude self-portraits have an audacity that seems unavailable now. 
not because it's that much easier these days for mothers to make art, but because the truth has quietly left that arena and there's no knowing if or when it will return. The truth content of a subject is a matter of ineluctable mystery and precision. Can the element of the eternal in the experience of femininity ever be represented as more than an internalised state? That possibility must lie in the female body itself, for it might be said that a woman artist has a clear choice. To adopt male objectivity and hope to pass as an honorary man, or to declare her femininity and its themes from the outset. It is a choice not just about making art, but about living. What is striking is the clarity with which Modus and Becker can be seen choosing this second path, and experiencing the dawning knowledge of its consequences. She doesn't entirely know, in other words, quite what it is she is choosing. She is being led by instinct. To be led by instinct is the preeminent freedom we attribute to male artists and to the making of art itself. There is a self-destructive element to that instinct and to the creative act, but in this case the cards have been dealt in advance. Here is a woman stepping out of relative safety and into the world of her own illegitimacy. She often painted in dramatic close-up, for instance the mouth of a baby suckling a breast or a child's hands grasping a toy. She was making a point not just about the inundation of her space by others, but about what a woman sees, not an artist, but a woman, in the reality of her womanhood. For now, what she sees isn't terribly important, as she herself isn't terribly important. It's the implication of this step, this move into representation, that is radical. Modus and Becker lived in the time of early modernism, a milieu in which the offer of equality was really an offer of imitation. Art schools for women, men who were prepared to teach in them, artistic movements they could ride if they wished. And who could really have seen that there was something wrong in that, some fundamental falsification that would betray and poison the root of being that is the sole source of artistic worth? Modus and Becker made a painting of her husband sleeping, in which the whole history of women painted asleep in beds that the artist has clearly just vacated is quietly mocked. The husband has fallen asleep fully clothed in a chair, in fact. He hasn't even taken off his glasses. The painting is an exercise in mild wonder. Wonder at the familiarity and yet unknowability of this being, her husband. Wonder, perhaps, at the sense of entitlement that allows him to simply fall asleep like that. Wonder at the artist's own power to perceive him when he doesn't know he's being watched. Since women perceive their husbands from deep within their subjection to them. It is not usual for a record to be made of these perceptions. Her point may have been that if one were to answer truthfully the question of what female art might look like, it would have to be composed chiefly of a sort of non-existence. Or rather, the means by which the art was created, the time and space it occupied, would have to be justified in full, legitimised in a way that art made by men does not require. Amid the children's screams, my own history of motherhood feels like something a long way upriver. I have drifted so far from it that I no longer detect the truth there. Have I gone beyond it, in some broader sense, surmounted it, not just in time but also in actual meaning? In other words, progressed. The screaming children fill me with impatience and a sort of dread, as though they represented some universal task from which I will never be free. At night I frequently dream that someone has given me a baby to look after and disappeared. 
In these dreams I am not impatient. I feel only a harrowing anxiety. In the children's screams I hear something true, so true I want to block my ears. Yet the world of domesticity and nurture they invoke, though irreducibly real, is a world submerged in and muffled by its enslavement to time, where that truth is held perennially at a distance. To be a mother is to live piercingly and inescapably in the moment. One can acknowledge the necessity for an artist to recognise her material, but the artist who is also a mother is the material, impacted and raw, from which she must cleave herself apart in pursuit of a creative objectivity. Each time she does it, a cost is exacted, the cost of experience. It is experience of almost too formative a kind, like being a soldier, and I am a veteran of it. I want medals, a special uniform. When the woman hit me in the street, I felt a veteran's outrage at being attacked. It was only this, this part of myself that had been a mother, that was capable of outrage. The rest of me felt that it was what I deserved. Dee and his wife travel to Italy, to a cultural festival where Dee will be the guest of honour. It sounds like a glamorous invitation, but the festival is badly organised and the weather is unseasonably rainy and grey. There is a public interview with Dee and fewer people attend than might have been expected. The villa where they are staying is a centre for artists' residencies. Many, many years ago, when their children were very small, Dee came here with his family for several months. His time in this villa, all those years ago, was what brought about the great turning point in his work, as though in a foreign place he had finally been able to unchain himself from the predestination of identity and be free. It is for this reason, nostalgia perhaps, that he accepted the invitation to the festival. But the villa is gloomy and uncomfortable and chilly, Dee and his wife, it seems, have grown accustomed to greater luxury. Dee rails and is angry. He catches a cold and cancels his media appointments. Dee's wife walks alone around the wet, foggy streets of the town. She considers buying some Italian delicacies to take home, but her heart isn't in it. She realises she doesn't actually believe in it anymore, in reality. If Italy and its delicacies are reality. The thought makes her sad yet she has been so fortunate. On the second day, in the afternoon, the sun unexpectedly advances from behind the clouds, as though stepping through the curtain on stage. The world is transformed. Dee's wife is standing at that moment at the tall, heavy windows of their room, which look out on the wet and desolate garden below. There is very little she finds familiar here from that other time so long ago. She recalls only blurred months of blazing heat and sun, full of sensuous pleasure and activity. This doleful return merely underscores the irretrievability of past time and the element of illusion, of belief, that she now sees constitutes so much of experience. She can't bear memory. She wants not to remember, but to live and feel. If there were some way of erasing all her memories, she would take it. Almost in the same moment that the sun bursts out, she hears the sound of chatter and of doors banging down below, and sees a family erupt onto the lawn. Her understanding of this sequence of events is far deeper than memory. It is a kind of creativity that applies knowledge to the ongoing moment. There are three small children, a girl and two boys, who speed all together across the lawn, and a young father following more slowly behind them. 
They have obviously been glued to the windows, waiting for the rain to stop. In the fresh sunlight, the sudden greens of the garden are like a pulsing hallucination. Birds flit joyfully from tree to lawn, and the flowers seem almost to lift up their heads and silently sing in the radiance. Her memories also are instantly illuminated. In fact, the sunny afternoon and the children at play are so real to her that they bypass memory and hint at actual recurrence. She is once more in the garden, entertaining her children while her husband works in a studio somewhere deep inside the cool and echoing villa. Her life is one of a continuous but diffuse momentum, like that of an ocean liner crossing seas with no visible landmark by which to gauge its progress. The movement, the progressing vessel, is her husband, and it has been easy, yes easy, and frequently scenic, absorbingly so, just as it is for the passengers on the ship's deck, watching the sun rise and set over the water, seeing new colours and lights at the world's rim, with an exalting sense of privilege at witnessing these things, while at other times, during weeks of storm and rain, they huddle inside and amuse themselves. Down on the lawn, the children's father is showing them something, kneeling as they gather round. An interesting flower or insect, perhaps. He is attractive, squatting there in his loose jeans, slim and rugged-looking. She wonders how he manages to do his work and still have time for the children, as Dee never did. But Dee is a genius, and his selfishness may be one reason for it. Or perhaps the man's wife is the artist. At the thought of this hypothetical woman, she experiences terror, as if at the prospect of an ominous responsibility being thrust upon her. She imagines the woman in her studio, captaining the vessel as it plunges heedlessly forward. Sometimes, at moments of crisis, she simply inverts her surroundings and instantly feels a sensation of peace. It is a habit she has got into over the years. Whatever is threatening or overwhelming in a set of circumstances is neutralised by being imagined upside down. It is the problem of perception, she understands, that has been removed. Her implication in events is taken away. She is certain that Dee would not like to know that this is what she does. Nevertheless, she revolves the garden so that the brilliant green grass becomes the sky, and the sky, so oblivious, tumbles with its fathomless blues and its cloud shapes to the earth. The heavy cypresses and the oaks hang from above, delirious with lightness, the man and the children are now just a patch of colour and texture among the other colours and textures, the burden of their humanity extinguished. One day, in an exhibition, I saw Norman Lewis's painting, Cathedral, and for a long time afterward, the memory of it stood in my mind. Sometimes I searched for photographs of it and looked at them. They resembled the memory, but were not the same as it. They were photographs of the memory. The painting itself still existed somewhere in time. It had struck me as small, for the reason, perhaps, that its subject was big. A small painting of a cathedral appeared to be a comment about marginality. It thwarted the grandiosity of man. His products could be no bigger than he was himself. What was absent from the painting was any belief in what the cathedral was, I remembered it as resembling a glowing pile of blackened embers, charged with internal heat. It seemed to belong more to nature than to man. I wondered how this same artist might have painted a mountain. The justice he brought to the cathedral was of a rare kind, 
was something akin to love or pity. He would not, perhaps, have pitied a mountain in the same way. The reality, or otherwise, of monuments is a form of distraction in cathedral, a facade behind which lies a relationship to power so oblique as to be almost ungraspable. It could perhaps be summed up as the idea that to stop experiencing the feeling of injustice would be to make the injustice no longer exist. It seemed to me that Norman Lewis liked the cathedral during the time that he looked at it, liked the way the sun made fire in its coloured windows so that the structure fell away into charred integuments. His liking was stronger than the cathedral, was more modern and alive. He chose to ignore the cathedral's power, like someone meeting a king and treating him as an equal, an instinctive if perilous kind of good manners. In a sense, he was also choosing to ignore his own marginality, for marginality is not an identity, inalterable and therefore situated beyond change. The marginal becomes the central later on, after the wars of ego have been fought, like a peacemaker arriving on the battlefield after the conflict has ended. In London, at a museum, I unexpectedly saw Cathedral again. It was the school holidays and the museum was providing special activities for children. Entertainers in big furry animal costumes were milling about the main hall, where music was playing and a disco ball suspended from the ceiling whirled coloured lights across the walls. The children ran around directionlessly, screaming and laughing, amid the discarded activity sheets and the smells of food from the cafeteria. There was a mild sensation of pandemonium, of a substanceless kind of anarchy, like people misbehaving in church. But this church of art was too fragile in its sanctity. Its core of belief was too menaced and mislaid for it to bear much public iconoclasm. The moral good of culture and the values of entertainment were already locked in a dance of death and needed no further encouragement. I was thinking of the virtues of difficulty and of how people who can find no reflection of themselves in their own circumstances might require proof of some boundlessness to the human soul some distant and inaccessible goal toward which it reaches, might need to see a record of those attempts and to realise how prepared people have been to run the risk of not being understood in making them. Not to be understood is effectively to be silenced, but not understanding can, in its turn, legitimise that silence and illuminate one's own unknowability. Art is the pact of individuals denying society the last word. There, in the commotion of the museum, I thought of Norman Lewis and of how as a child he had learned to draw by copying the pictures in books borrowed from a library in Harlem. Harlem later became his subject because it was the subject that was given to him. The marginalised artist, like any marginalised person, is obliged to reckon with reality first. But Norman Lewis eventually and deliberately set reality aside. Was abstraction like imagination or fantasy, merely a mechanism of escape? Was there some debt that was left unpaid in this abandonment of the scene of limitation? It was a question not just about the moral value of freedom in the context of aestheticism, but about the actual nature of freedom itself. Being hit in the head, I now saw, had been for me both real and unknowable, was the inversion of representation while being ultimately representative. The world is upside down, a friend of mine said when I told her what had happened to me. Yet the reality of violence, painful though it was, 
seemed to offer a correction to the reality that obeys the laws of gravity. What it offered was a bloody kind of truth. You, I called her, the woman who had hit me, called her in my mind the hundreds of times I thought of her each day. She had replaced my image of myself, the image I had left behind me in the gilded mirror of the lady's apartment. She was my dark twin, an inextinguishable reminder of something in myself that had been denied existence. She herself did not deny it. Her body was the entire limit of her being, and she had chosen to deploy her objectification. She had done her work without making a sound. These were her offerings, the offerings of the stuntman, violence and silence. In the museum I walked through the rooms at random, trying to escape the noise. In a large, long gallery, where the paintings had been hung one above another, almost to ceiling height, I suddenly saw it, the small, smouldering canvas. It was somewhat lost among other, larger works, and too far up the wall to properly see. It needed intimacy and proximity. It needed attention. Even here, in the safety of the museum, there was always this obligation, the fight to find a way out of obscurity. By that fact alone, one might have said that Norman Lewis had failed to overcome his circumstances and attain a creative equality. In a sense, the painting was a painting of that same failure. It was this, I realised, this summoning of the obscurity itself that was so moving. It was his portion. It was what he had. He chose to represent it so as not to add more to the balance sheet of lost things. He was placing it on the scales of justice, this account of his refusal to be separated from himself. By painting the obscurity, he is trying not to be angered by it. Instead, he is trying to love it, the darkness in which he moves, the light that sometimes pierces it and that only his eyes can see. That was Rachel Cusk reading her story, The Stuntman. This is her first story in The New Yorker. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Saeed Serafizadeh reads Ill Seen, Ill Said by Samuel Beckett. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice in Apple Podcasts. The Writer's Voice is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.